and I will now introduce tonight's speakers from the Commission for Smart Government, an independent initiative on how to make government more effective. The first is Nick Herbert, former Conservative MP and a minister in David Cameron's government, now in the Lords and the founder and chair of the Commission. Next is Tasima Chakrabarti, who was a civil servant for almost 30 years, ending as the permanent secretary in the Ministry of Justice before he left Whitehall in 2012 to become president of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, stepping down last year. And our third speaker is Sophie Miramadi, who's the project director of the commission. Each of our speakers is going to talk for just five minutes at the start, and we'll then have a panel discussion for 30 minutes or so before we open it up to Q&A. Abby Turner is going to collect the questions. If you want to ask your question direct, we'll ask you to unmute, but if you want Abby to put your question, that is fine. Please be understanding if your question is not selected, we may not be able to answer them all. And we aim to finish the seminar around seven o'clock or at the very latest by 7.15. So let me now invite Nick Herbert to introduce the work of the Commission for Smart Government. Nick, over to you. Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Robert. And thank you so much for inviting the Commission to join you today. We really value this uh, opportunity. Uh, my interest in uh, public administration predates the time that I became an MP uh, in 2005. It, it, it was actually five years before that that I set up the reform think tank. Uh, and uh, I think that my interest accelerated when I became an MP and particularly it, when uh, I uh, was a minister uh, briefly in David Cameron's government um, serving in uh, two departments, the Home Office uh, and the MOJ. And actually, uh, Sumo was permanent secretary uh, at, at the MOJ uh, when uh, I was there. After I left government, um, I wanted, one of the reasons actually I wanted to leave government was to go back to more the kind of think tanking uh, existence that I enjoyed rather more than being uh, a minister. And uh, I focused on a number of issues, but, but one of them uh, was a Whitehall reform. And it was born of, of, of partly of my experience, but also of the conviction that our system of public administration uh, isn't always equal to the challenges uh, that uh, it faces, that those challenges are growing uh, quite considerably uh, and, um, and, and look set to grow further in the future. And I think it's fairly easy to identify what those are, you know, rapidly uh, rising demand and public expectations, the advent of uh, social media, the further digital revolution that we uh, expect, uh, and uh, pressure on public uh, resources. And uh, I, I set up a, a group called GovernUp, which um, produced some ideas about how the system uh, could be made uh, more effective. It was a cross-party uh, initiative. Uh, the EU uh, Brexit referendum uh, intervened, uh, but after that, um, I decided and felt quite strongly that it was it, 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 it was timely to start looking at these issues again. Uh, and I, I was delighted when Suma and uh, a number of other uh, senior people agreed uh, to join a new commission for smart government, which we decided we would set up uh, for a year. 
uh, to investigate these issues uh, and to make recommendations for change. Uh, we could hardly have anticipated uh, uh, that um, at the time we first started talking about, about this, the impact of the COVID epidemic that uh, revealed, I think, both uh, strengths in our public administration, but also weaknesses, and had the very interesting effect, I think, of uh, enlarging uh, the audience uh, within the Westminster political world of people who really were interested in this subject. Because I think it's been a failing in the past that uh, far too many politicians were uh, interested in policy and perhaps above all politics and not interested enough in how you ensure that those policies are effectively uh, implemented. Uh, and um, my, my own view, and we can talk more about this, is, is that this is a project that should not just talk about uh, the civil service, although that is a, a major part of our inquiry, but also the other parts of our system of public administration, which are the politicians. Um, because um, I, I, I think that the kind of narrative which occasionally has surfaced in this discourse of Whitehall Wars, of um, some kind of attack on, on Whitehall is wrong and uh, counterproductive. And I think that increasingly, and I think this is certainly the case um, as a consequence of COVID, there is a, gr a growing uh, recognition that we, we need to update our system of public administration and equip it for the challenges that I have described. So um, the, the commission uh, consists of 20 senior people. You can see who they are uh, on governsmarter.org. Uh, uh, business leaders, uh, people who are currently engaged in, in, in Whitehall as uh, non-executive directors, including the government's lead non-executive director, the government's previous lead non-executive director, former senior civil servants, including Suma, but also Michael Bishard, the first founder of the first director of the Institute for, uh, for Government, and um, uh, political figures, uh, are, are again, on a cross-party basis. So it includes uh, Margaret Hodge, the former chair of the Public Accounts Committee, uh, and actually um, some interesting figures uh, from other walks of life, uh, former um, uh, four-star general, former uh, very senior uh, police officer, uh, for instance. We started uh, in the summer of last year, and we have been, uh, we aim uh, to make final recommendations um, by the middle of, of this year, although we've been publishing consultative reports uh, along the way, and I expect Sophie will talk a little bit more about precisely what we're doing, but that's, that's the background, that's why we set up the, uh, uh, the commission, and I hope I've kind of emphasised, but happy to talk a bit more about why I think this is uh, uh, so, so important, and why an independent group um, I think is, is needed to, 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 to give attention to these issues, because I don't think it's something that uh, politicians uh, alone uh, are, are, are likely to give enough attention to. Thank you, Nick. You described you've got a very impressive group of commissioners uh, and at your evidence sessions, which I've sat in on, and anyone out in the audience there who's interested uh, by going onto the website can see the evidence sessions. You've had some very impressive witnesses coming before you as well, but perhaps Sophie's going to tell us more about that when it's, when it's her turn. But next we come to Suma. So Suma, we've had the, as it were, the politicians or the former politicians view, uh, now give us the former permanent secretary's view. 
Thanks very much, uh, Robert. Well, I mean, it's a very similar view, actually. I mean, Nick and I have collaborated on this when we were working together within um, government when he was a minister and I was permanent secretary at the Ministry of Justice. So we've been talking about these issues together for a long time. Um, I guess from my perspective, having been quite heavily involved towards the end of the major um, government in the fundamental expenditure reviews, uh, then in the Blair government, and I, I, had a, I was inside the ring, if you like, not even a ringside seat, on some of the reforms, public service agreements, uh, through the creation of the Performance Innovation Unit, which became the Strategy Unit, and then helping to create the Delivery Unit as well. And at the same time, running two major departments, International Development and then Justice, I had a sort of you know, heavy involvement in some of the reforms as well, and also did a review of the Cabinet Office as well, Gus O'Donnell's behest. Um, and then eight years of actually observing uh, my own government and governance in the widest sense and how it's functioning when I was at EBRD. Um, and I've always been very interested in international comparisons, uh, the international context of different styles and methods of government, uh, which has been very important to this uh, commission, actually. And I, I think Sophie can say more about that as well, because you've taken evidence from other countries, too. I think some of the issues for me are very longstanding actually, but some of the issues I think as Nick is uh, saying, I think have been brought into even, um, you know, greater relief, if you like, by what's happened over the last year. So if I think of some of the issues that have been on my mind for a long time, why I think this commission is really important. First of all, I think there's been a long-standing problem uh, of a lack of focus really on the long-term strategic challenges facing the UK. Um, from examples like on the economic side, we've had a productivity problem for a long, long time. Uh, why is it that our system of governance doesn't really get to focus in closely on this issue? Social care, a big issue that we've had for years, um, again, that we have not really resolved and focused in on. How are we going to achieve the net zero emissions target? Uh, another one. And now global Britain post-Brexit. Um, you know, So these are old issues and some new issues. But as a system of governance, I don't think it's currently coming up with solutions uh, to these issues. The second issue that's, I think, troubled me and Nick for a long time is really the departmentalist uh, attitude that, um, you know, is in our political system and in our civil service system as well. Um, and there's just not enough focus on cross-cutting out outcomes, and this affects the way Parliament behaves, the way ministers behave, the way the civil service also behaves. And yet, most of the outcomes that the public care about require uh, you know, cross-cutting approach, not really department-by-department department approach. This leads, I think, to a third observation that's uh, inter of interest to me and I think of the Commission is, what is the portrait of the modern parliamentarian, modern minister, modern civil servant? Uh, what sort of mix of skills do we need to see across all three groups in terms of leadership, in terms of management, in terms of technical skills? Um, and I think these all need to shift quite considerably. Uh, and for my money, I think we need to move away from within the civil service, certainly from the culture of generalists towards more specialist expertise, more rounded expertise, I would say, uh, even in the policy areas as well, not just the delivery areas. And I think that requires a different approach to recruitment, to training, uh, and how we um, actually nurture the talent once they're inside the system. A fourth issue that's always, I mean, been, uh, you know, because I've worked in four or five departments, including both Treasury and Cabinet Office, is a relationship within the centre, between Number 10, between the Treasury and between the, Cab and the Cabinet Office, and then between the centre as a group and the spending departments, 
but also between the centre and local government, and between the UK government and the devolved administrations. And this is getting a much, becoming a much more complicated set of issues um, as we're discovering this, this in the Commission's work. In fact, I think we've got a, another evidence session coming up on devolution quite soon, uh, which will look at some of this. And I think the other thing that's really struck me, uh, I guess, in the last few years is that the problem is getting worse. Um, you know, this is probably me showing my age, but in the, in the past, um, people would always say um, UK, along with Singapore, the two best governance systems around and you know, and but you now look at things like Moody. Moody's um, the credit rating agency downgraded the UK, I think, last autumn. And one of the reasons it gave was that um, it had uh, it had it felt that uh, there'd been a weakening in UK institutions and governance over recent years. You look at the World Bank's um, government effectiveness uh, measure, uh, which I always used to rely on, uh, as you know, good indicator of UK um, health in this area. But UK now uh, used to come top, uh, now ranks below all the G7 countries other than Italy. Surprised to me that it ranks below the US even now. Um, not a system of governance, I think, that works that well, but we're below the US even now. And we're certainly below Australia, uh, New Zealand, Canada as well. So in the international rankings by serious people, we're not seen as strong as we used to be. So these are four reasons why I think this is a very timely commission, why I'm really happy to be taking part in it. Thank you very much uh, for that very clear critique. Um, now, Sophie, I think you're going to tell us a little bit about the Commission's uh, ways of working and where you've got to so far. Sophie, over to you. Yeah, so um, as Nick and Sum have, have described, we're trying to sort of take quite a kind of holistic view of, of government reform. So alongside issues that, that have been kind of traditionally associated with civil service reform, so things like the skills and capabilities of, of civil servants. We're also examining the kind of wider, the wider systems in which civil servants and, and ministers operate. Um, we're looking at, at how government plans spending and allocates money against priorities and tracks performance. Um, we're looking at government's capacity to deliver projects successfully, how it operationalizes its policies. We're looking at the use of data and digital technology to transform policy making um, and, and how public services are experienced by citizens. Um, and we're looking at a, how a new phase of devolution could see strategic partnerships between central and local government on, on priorities such as, as net zero and leveling up. Um, and as Nick mentioned, we're looking at the role of ministers um, and how they could be more effective in their roles. And of course, all these areas are very kind of closely interrelated. So it's helpful to be able to look at it in the round and, and, and see the interdependencies between them. Um, and so how are we going about this? So our approach is to, is to kind of you know, look closely at what's, what's working well at the moment and, and what isn't working in the current system. We are, we're taking care to kind of compare against um, other, other governments internationally, as Suma mentioned, um, but also other high-performing organisations in the public sector here in the UK. We're taking a look at the British Army, for example, and how they manage their people. Um, and we're also taking a look at, at corporates in the, in the private sector. Um, and as someone myself, I've, I've, I've worked both as a civil servant um, and uh, in, the, in, 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 the, in the corporate world. And um, there, you know, there are really stark differences with, with the way that, that, that organisations are run and managed. Um, so we're working on an open platform, we're holding a series of public evidence sessions um, so we can hear from witnesses within government and other governments internationally um, 
uh, to really kind of bring to life the issues we're examining. Um, we're publishing discussion papers um, as we go to kind of test our analysis and our emerging proposals. So there, there are a number which are available now on our website. Um, and then what we're going to do is we're going to bring together our findings into a kind of single set of overarching proposals that will form a kind of package of reform measures that will together amount to the system reset that we think is needed. Um, and I'll just give you a flavor of <clears throat> some of the emerging themes that, that um, we're seeing so far. So the importance of reorientating government around real world outcomes for the citizen, the community, the business is kind of like a, 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 guiding, a, a guiding theme for us. Um, as Suma mentioned, the need for greater strategic clarity. Um, so, so resources, so money, talent, the focus of leaders can be more rigorously allocated against priorities. Um, I think it was John Manzoni that said that government is, is doing too much to be doing it well. Um, in, Nick mentioned the, the, the kind of crisis over the last year, and it's often said that government performs most effectively in a crisis. And, and you know, some, of, some of what we've um, heard uh, suggests that that's, that's often because everyone's focused around a really clear set of objectives. Um, and we're looking, around, we're looking at how kind of clearer organizational goals can, can provide clarity um, on individual objectives at, at every level of the organization and for ministers too that can now allow for more sensible conversations around what does resources required um, to deliver X objective and within Y timeframe. Um, so how does that enable more rigorous performance management against accomplishments rather than activities and behaviors? And how do you get to sharper accountability? Um, as Suma mentioned, moving kind of further and faster on, on professionalization of talent within government, um, getting serious about management skills, um, that's a kind of a key difference that's come through between, between corporate organizations and, and the civil service. And then looking at why the civil service is such a curiously impervious organization. And when you look at the corporate world, most successful organizations are really energetic about attracting the best talent. But in the civil service, you, you have the reverse situation. You have a really passive approach to recruiting outside talent, but this ferocious internal competition for talent, which leads to this rapid turnover of roles and churn, which is a real problem. Um, and um, and uh, we'll have a, we have a number of lessons that we've drawn from other governments, but I can perhaps come on to that um, later on in the discussion. Thank you all three of you. So for those in the audience who joined um, after the start, we're now going to have a a discussion with the panel for 20 minutes or so, and then we're going to come to Q&A. So please keep your questions feeding into the Q&A because your turn will come shortly. But in terms of the panel discussion, um, I'm going to come if I may first to Nick. Um, and Nick, you're a former politician um, and one of the oft made criticisms of ministers is that they like announcing things, but they're not so good. Uh, on following up in terms of delivery and implementation. Can you give us some of your thoughts about that? And also tell us about the work of the Commission in terms of trying to get government interested when understandably, most people in government will be uh, so busy tackling the COVID crisis. Um, they probably don't have very much time for, as it were, outside busybodies telling them how to do their job better. How do you break through that perfectly understandable barrier? Nick, over to you. Well, thank you. I mean, first of all, on this on this question of, of, of um, ministers being more interested in, in the announcement, I, I, I think 
uh, that is a major problem. Uh, the win is too often seen uh, as the announcement rather than securing the outcome. One reason for that is that the outcome can be in the future and not even within the expected lifetime of a minister, particularly if there's a high churn uh, of, of ministers, but it's also a cultural problem. And it can be worse. Um, you, sometimes uh, we, we've seen uh, government uh, thinking that the win is briefing a plan, an ambition, uh, not even a kind of formal set of policy uh, uh, proposals, but winning a quick headline. Uh, by suggesting that there's some grand scheme uh, and so on, which wins the approval uh, of, of the press, but rapidly disappoints if it's not even properly announced and further disappoints if it's not even properly delivered. Uh, so I think this is um, in uh, large part a failure of proper strategic planning, which is what both Suma and Sophie uh, talked about. It's also a cultural problem, as, uh, as I've referred to, that it is, I think, um, partly the fault of ministers themselves. Uh, and, and that is not thinking through about what, what is really valued by the public, which is uh, outcomes, success, rather than uh, something that sounds good uh, when, it's, when it's announced. And if I were to give a sort of an obvious example, but it's a, a very current one, uh, the, the, the success of the vaccine development uh, and the very rapid rollout on, on it is precisely because of that, because the vaccine has been developed, because the government uh, succeeded in procuring large quantities uh, of it and is rolling it out uh, very fast. And people have very obviously responded to that success in spite of some of the other uh, failures in the response uh, to the pandemic. The success wasn't announcing uh, that we would uh, 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 try and uh, develop a vaccine. It wasn't even uh, in announcing that large sums of public money would be uh, committed uh, to this. What mattered was the outcome. And it sounds such a simple thing to say, but actually I'm not sure that our political culture minds about the outcomes enough. Uh, and it certainly, therefore, doesn't mind about the processes that are necessary to ensure that there are good outcomes. And yet, in the end, this is actually about good government. It's about delivering uh, for, for, for the people. And um, in that sense, there isn't a kind of silver bullet to this. I think we do have to sort of go back to the fundamentals of, 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 of how uh, politics should be properly organised and government uh, delivered. In terms of getting the government interested in this. Um, I think uh, it's probably true to say uh, that up until recently, um, it, uh, the only prime minister who was really interested in this in kind of recent history was Tony Blair, who was extremely interested in delivery, in ensuring that the system uh, worked, who set up strong internal processes to try and uh, and make it happen under Michael Barber. Um, to be fair, David Cameron was uh, slightly interested in this and there were some reforms, including the setting up and strengthening of uh, departmental boards and Francis Maud um, uh, did a lot of pioneering work on, um, on, on Whitehall reform. But it's, to be you know, honest, there wasn't a huge amount of prime ministerial interest, nor 
interest from the uh, then chancellor uh, in the issue. The next prime minister uh, was uh, consumed with uh, having to do with the fallout of, of, of Brexit. And actually, I think a lot of the reforms that have been introduced by David Cameron were actually reversed in, in, in that time. There was not enough attention to these issues at all. Uh, and the system was obviously being highly stressed. Um, what I think has changed is that the current prime minister is very interested in this. And it is COVID in particular, and probably also uh, the issues relating to the implementation of Brexit that have made him interested. Uh, and uh, his chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster in charge of the cabinet office, Michael Gove, has a long-standing interest in this. And other ministers who've been brought in, for instance, Theodore Agnew, uh, crossing the cabinet office and the treasury, um, are, are, are also people who are long-standing uh, reform-minded uh, uh, business people. Uh, John Nash, I mentioned, Lord Nash, who former minister, now a uh, very successful businessman, is now the lead uh, government non-executive director, is very interested in these issues. For the first time for a while, uh, there is a cadre of people uh, at the, uh, the centre who really do believe that it matters to ensure that the system delivers. Now, I think that there have been, you know, there is a bandwidth issue in the government and uh, there have been issues to do with both Brexit implementation and quite obviously COVID that have meant that uh, I, I, it has been difficult, I think, for the government to secure the kind of political bandwidth that's necessary to really drive uh, this process forward. But I have no doubt that Michael Gove uh, intends to and that others around him intend to. And as a last point, I should just say that uh, one of our commissioners was Baroness Finn, Simone Finn, who... Uh, was Francis Maud's special advisor uh, when he was uh, uh, the cabinet office minister who was implementing reforms as I've described. She has just become uh, the prime minister's deputy chief of staff. So she stepped down from our commission, but I have absolutely no doubt that she will be carrying in government the same views and convictions about the need for change. So I think we are well plugged in yet independent. Uh, uh, and I am also please that I think we have, if you like, a client. I think the government is uh, uh, wanting to reform. I think what it will value is constructive ideas about how to do it. And I think uh, John Nash, Lord Nash, uh, is also one of your commissioners, who's now the government's lead non-executive director. Yes, he is. And, and, and as I mentioned, Ian Cheshire, who is the previous uh, lead non-executive directors, two other um, uh, non-executive directors of the cabinet office, Simone Finn, as I mentioned, has just uh, uh, left, but also Baroness Stewart, who's the lead non-executive director in the cabinet office. So you can see that the commission, uh, uh, you know, is it, in a position where, 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 where I hope we will be able to influence uh, what is happening. But I do want to stress that we are independent. We weren't asked to, to set up. Uh, we don't answer to the government. Uh, we are funded uh, independently and we are bipartisan and uh, and uh, we are we are in, in, in no way either a party political operation or a creature of the government. And you've mentioned some key figures now at the centre who are interested in delivery. Um, but how are they going to get ministers out in the line departments to raise their game? I mean, take, for example, your former department, the MOJ. Suppose uh, that, the, think about the minister in charge of 
let's say, knife crime, to take a cross-cutting issue of the kind Simo mentioned. Um, how, that, that's been a hardy perennial in terms of something very difficult to crack. It requires long-term policy thinking, uh, you know, in schools, social services, uh, communities, etc. How, how, what would your prescription be that you hope those colleagues in the centre of government really interested in improving delivery can say to their ministerial uh, counterparts in the line departments? I do think that we have a challenge, which is to persuade our current partner politicians uh, in all parties that this issue matters and to explain to them you know, why they should be more and not just interested in the politics. Uh, there is a challenge because uh, ministers are very busy. I mean, extraordinarily busy, uh, and uh, it's difficult uh, for them to, to, to um, do anything other than, than focus on, if you like, uh, the day-to-day business of running their uh, departments and, and delivering uh, the government's objectives effectively um, as they can. I, I think if I, if I were um, just being a little bit mischievous, I would say that part of the problem in the past is that some of um, our most effective ministers from, from governments of, uh, of both major parties, um, uh, those that ha have been um, you know, very highly regarded for, for um, their abilities and so on, were the least interested in reform. And that's because um, they were kind of super minister, uh, particularly in their own eyes. You know, there was no problem that couldn't be fixed by their own talents. Uh, and, uh, and super minister could come in charge into a department and um, a sweep all uh, before him or, or, or her. And uh, I'm not going to name those people, but you might guess who some of these sort of stellar figures uh, have been. I'm not talking about prime ministers. Uh, and uh, they were indeed uh, impressive, uh, but it, the problem is uh, that their sort of perceived success in the political world uh, means that they're not terribly interested in, in, in the issues of the machinery, because they think it's all about um, uh, just raw political talent. Then there is a, a much bigger cadre of ministers who really just um, don't think that the issue of the machinery is for them. They think it's above their pay grade. Uh, or that the system is simply the system that they inherit and arrive at when they uh, um, enter departments and they're insufficiently interested uh, in it. So I think um, that our, our challenge is to explain why this matters to the success of any government uh, and why it should matter to these individual politicians. And I think we have, if you like, a, a fair win because I think the COVID epidemic has widened the pool of those uh, uh, thoughtful ministers and politicians who kind of realize that ensuring that we have a system that, that delivers does matter. Uh, it really matters. Uh, and, and also who, uh, you know, uh, can see the challenges that are now facing uh, the, the country which are, which are so profound. So I'm an optimist about this. Thank you. I can see some questions trickling in. We'll come to questions uh, in the next five or ten minutes. So keep those questions coming in, please, from the audience. Suma, can I come to you next? Um, you said in your intro that you've been involved in several Whitehall reform initiatives in your long career, um, but uh, clearly those have not led to su sufficient change. Can you tell us about some of the obstacles to change in Whitehall and what you would like the Commission to recommend to overcome those obstacles? 
Oh, thanks, uh, Robert. I mean, I just add to Nick's uh, points about trying to influence government. We're all, I mean, that's absolutely, I agree with him, but we're also trying to influence opposition as well and devolved administrations. I mean, Nick has that role very much as as the head of the commission to try and get to all all parts, really. Um, On obstacles, I mean, you know, my experience is that ministers tend to blame civil servants for the obstacles. Civil servants tend to blame ministers for the obstacles. And probably there are one moment of unity is when they can both blame parliament and the media uh, for the obstacles. But I guess based on what I've seen and experience, I think there are two major things, and we are looking at these two. One is about the centre of government um, and whether it can be made to function a lot better. Uh, I'll give you two examples from that. I think um, if you look at the support for the prime minister as a head of government, it's pretty weak compared with other countries, other well-run countries. Uh, we've been hanging, I think underneath this, we've been hanging on to the primus inter pares, the first among equals sort of concept for a very long time and a collective responsibility. So we've never wanted to empower our prime ministers too much compared with the others around the cabinet table. But in the real world, the expectations now of the prime minister's leader of government is much greater than in the classical uh, mode, if you like. Um, and so there is, I think, uh, you know, need to think through whether we can and in what way um, actually give the prime minister better support. Um, and not just a firefighting support, which they have, but also uh, creation, turning strategy into actual deliverables. And I think that's a, it's a big issue for us, I think. And the division of labor in the center between, um, I think the cabinet office and treasury is another part of something we're having to look at because together they should be helping to drive the strategic vision of the government uh, through to the departments and the departments should be helping to deliver that. But there is a confusion of roles in my view and having led a treasury spending team, having re- led the treasury public expenditure side, but also then having worked in cabinet office in the economic domestic secretariat, I think there's some confusion about the two roles and we are, we are looking at other models in other countries as to whether you know you really put the performance management side of looking at how departments are functioning, how they're delivering more in the center in the, in the cabinet office rather than the treasury. That's another thing we're, we're thinking about. Uh, having worked in the treasury, this is not a criticism. I think most finance ministries are like this. Um, and they're all, it's almost inbuilt. I think it's a culture of pessimism and a, quite a culture of skepticism about what government can do in the end. And actually most governments want to do something uh, and they want to get on and do something. And I think personally the cabinet office might be a better place to put this, this sort of, you know, pushing departments to deliver sort of side of it. And that the delivery unit, I think, was a good example of that, actually. Um, then the other part, I think, that um, I guess is an obstacle uh, would be this whole question of, which I touched on, the way we are organised. I'm an economist, so I tend to think structures and incentives really matter. Um, and ministries are mostly vertical. They're secretaries of state, they're permanent secretaries, also accountable to parliament in a very vertical fashion. Uh, and of course, you add to that competition between uh, ministers for the uh, for the promotion to higher things. Uh, and yet, the reality is that public policy problems are largely horizontal, and they require cross departmental working, cooperation, shared objectives, uh, shared budgets as um, part of the incentives, and shared accountability as well. There've been attempts over the last uh, many years to try and fix this, you know, starting on the policy side with the CPRS in the 1970s, the Performance Innovation Unit, the trash unit that I led uh, at the policy level, joined up government was a uh, leitmotif for Tony Blair's government. 
Um, and there were one or two successes. I mean, uh, I remember the uh, conflict pool uh, for Africa as being a success. Why? Because the Foreign Office, Ministry of Defense and DFID could agree on the objectives. There were shared objectives and they therefore could deliver the right incentives. And actually the three permanent secretaries, we had a united front. We used to visit the conflict areas together and present, you know, I think. But compare and contrast criminal justice system where Nick and I toiled to try and get the same synergy. Um, and I think Theresa May's quote, it's a, it's a little unfair, but her quote that, you know, I, I lock him up and he lets him out when she was talking about uh, Ken Clark, does sum up, I think, uh, the difficulty of trying to get uh, some sort of joined up uh, approach there. So I think those are some of the obstacles, but we're on the case in the commission in trying to actually come up with some answers, some radical answers to, to uh, those, those sort of problems. And just going back to your first point about strengthening number 10, um, and you may not want to be too specific, but how much larger do you think number 10 needs to be? Or simply in terms of missing skills and experience or capacity, uh, what, what are the, what's the strengthening that's required? Well, I, th I think, um, I can't give an exact figure. I think it's about 200 people currently in number 10, uh, if I remember rightly. Um, but I think uh, a lot of those people are focused, uh, I, I think they're targeted the wrong things sometimes. So uh, as I said, I think a lot of them are doing firefighting uh, rather than actually thinking a lot more long-term. I mean, starting with the manifesto, the first question I would think uh, number 10 should be thinking about is, uh, you know, first of all, the manifesto now needs uh, some, some sort of adaptation given COVID. Uh, but what is the sort of, you know, how to deliver this sort of manifesto for today uh, over the next uh, remaining part of this parliament? Um, I don't think a lot of what that thinking is going on. So it's a skill set that's different from the, what is currently in number 10 as well. Uh, I think the way cabinet committees are constructed, the way parliamentary committees are constructed, these are all important. They're, they're not outcome focused. Um, they're actually department by department. Um, and, you know, what we're doing is reinforcing those incentives to think in department way, you know, whereas we want to judge people on outcomes. Um, I think you'll find that will be one of the bigger themes on Nick's in charge, but I, mean, I think that's a common view amongst the commissioners, that we, we, should, we should try and set up the system, the structures of the system, the incentives built around more outcomes rather than uh, silo departments. Thank you. And Sophie, coming to you, you in your opening remarks mentioned uh, learning from other countries and also learning more from the private sector. Um, I've sat in on some of your evidence sessions, really interesting ones with people from New Zealand, from Canada. Could you tell us a bit more about the lessons you think you've learned from other countries and also from, from the corporate sector? Yeah. So, um, so most recently, we were um, trying to get to grips with um, the benefits or, and disadvantages of, of Canada's use of public mandate letters to set the government's strategic agenda um, and to hold it to account for delivery, which was something that, that Canada has done for many, many years, but, but changed decisively under Justin Trudeau's first government in 2015 when these, when these letters became published. Um, and, and, and the government has made a, a big um, effort to, to be really upfront with what it wants to achieve in terms of objectives and to set a sort of um, milestones as well and, and where, um, where cross-government working is required. Um, and there is a 
very easily navigable um, website where you can track all of these letters um, and progress against all of the objectives set out in those. Um, we've also been looking at New Zealand. Um, we heard from former Prime Minister Bill English there about their use of, of public service data. They have, New Zealand has the best um, public service data in the world um, to make longitudinal investment calculations about the value of particular interventions. So, so some of these kind of tricky issues like knife crime, like, like social care, you know, how do you quantify the liabilities on the government's balance sheet for, these, for these, some of these issues? Um, we've also looked at their use of new legal frameworks for cross-government working, which are in some ways are kind of poached from the private sector. So they are effectively sort of joint venture subsidiaries where, where um, uh, they've made an effort to sort of align authority and accountability um, in order to, to give these bodies kind of freedom to focus on the specific set of objectives that, that, that they're going after. Um, the first one um, is around domestic violence. Um, we've also been examining the merits of their Beehive system for, for co-locating ministers. Um, and uh, we've been looking at Singapore. Uh, so, so Singapore has, has sort of famously, there's this culture of excellence in their public service. So what underpins that? Um, looking at their, their sort of rigorous uh, performance management systems, which are actually um, derived from, from Goldman Sachs and, and, and other kind of public sector organizations. They use the performance payer standard, and that's, that's also something that's common in Canada too. Um, and uh, Singapore's budget is interesting. So, so their use of a kind of a, a very small set of priority areas, just, just four in their latest budget to kind of focus the activity um, and how they report their progress against that. Uh, we've been looking at, uh, at the states, so we've been looking at um, the Office for Management and Budget there, um, and specifically a set of reforms um, that were put in place in the GW Bush era uh, that, that, that saw the OMB uh, work with departments and agencies to define a set of core objectives, um, and then to measure each, each department's internal capability. Um, and they, they, they published a, a scorecard of their assessment um, of, the, of, of the department's sort of current status, but also the, the quality of their work to, to, to improve. Um, and uh, uh, interestingly, those, re those reforms have since rolled back. Um, similarly, we're gonna take a look at uh, Canada's uh, Treasury Management Board as well, which performs a similar sort of function. Um, so so that's, uh, that's been our learning on the, uh, on the other government side. Um, so looking at turning to corporates, um, we've, been looking, we've been looking at effective corporate governance in the, um, in the corporate world. So looking at, um, at the role of, of, of boards in corporates and thinking, well, what lessons can we draw from that to think about how departmental boards could be made more effectively, more effective, um, and how can we use, uh, use NEDs in helping to provide assurance for departmental business plans and for delivery against them. Um, the, interest, the use of, uh, sorry, the attitude towards people is really interesting. So, so in the corporate sector, looking at, looking at how people and talent is, is viewed as, as a strategic issue and gets a lot of leadership time and attention. Um, in, the civil servants, in the civil service, it's often a bit more of an operational issue, dealing perhaps with more transactional issues, payroll, disciplinary recruitment. Um, and we've also been looking at strategic financial management and, and business planning in large complex corporates. Um, so assessment of value, uh, a risk-based approach to control versus autonomy um, based on assessment of each business unit's capacity. 
um, plus the kind of financial planning and strategic skills that are required to run this sort of process really effectively. Um, and actually that's gonna form the basis of our, of our next um, discussion paper that we're gonna be publishing shortly. Now we'll come to Q&A in a moment. Um, I think we haven't got many questions. Is that right, Abby? How many have you got lined up? Yeah, I've, I've got a first batch of three, so we can... And is there then a second batch? Uh, yeah, we've got two questions. Okay, well, uh, we'll come to questions in a moment. I've got one more question for the panel, quick answers if you would. Um, it's about levelling up. Um, to take that as a particular issue that this government is clearly very, very keen on, we've talked in general terms um, about how to improve the effectiveness of government. But Nick, if I could come to you first, your thoughts about what they need to do to deliver on levelling up, very ambitious uh, agenda, and the difficulties that Whitehall has had in the past about in devolving power. What are your thoughts on that? Well, we'll be publishing um, a paper very soon, uh, as Suma mentioned, on devolution, and we will be be actually looking at those issues through the prism of the of the uh, of the levelling up agenda. And uh, I think what we will what we will be saying is that actually, in, in order uh, to ensure that the government's objectives uh, are, are, are met, uh, that it will be necessary uh, for, for there to, to, to be uh, further uh, devolution um, within, um, uh, within England. Um, and uh, so, so if you like, we're, we're coming to that. Um, I, I think that uh, it goes back to what we were saying at the beginning, which is which is that first of all, we have to have a kind of clarity uh, about what the leveling up agenda means, uh, and I think that that it's a good kind of uh, overarching theme. But but but, but, but I think uh, the danger uh, is is that uh, the system isn't specific enough about the reforms that are necessary and the and the outcomes that we want. Uh, it, it, to ensure that general levelling up, so I think I think that it will also be necessary um, to get some clarity uh, a, a, around those. But I think uh, as to the issue of devolution, I would just say watch this space. But I would make one addendum, which is that I think there is um, uh, perhaps the beginnings of um, uh, the pendulum that seems to have swung in this country between localism and centralization uh, beginning to swing back. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure yet, but you know, there was a kind of localist mood um, over the, if you like, the past decade where, where there was a kind of presumption about um, devolving uh, further powers. I wonder if that's still there. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, and I wonder whether the COVID experience persuades the government uh, that they need to go further on this, or whether it makes them um, uh, think about whether um, whether actually uh, it's, it, 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 further devolution isn't something that they want to commit uh, more political capital to. And I think the solution will will lie in in getting a clarity about what functions should rest at at, at what level, uh, rather than necessarily having a sort of guiding ideology. Which says that you know, that we can give you local high school. Thank you. 
Now, the audience have been very patient, um, but it's time now for their questions. Um, so, Abby, could you give us the first round? Yeah, sure. I'm going to ask Sam Dixon, Mailing Harris, and John Newman to ask their question. Sam. Yes. Uh, he hello, everyone. Um, I just wanted to ask, what have been the most effective reforms to make government smarter in the past? Thank you. Nice, crisp question. And next, Mailing. Well, it's not Mailing, it's her husband, Tom. I'm not sure why my wife's name has come up. <laughs> uh, Welcome, Tom. Both the public and the um, private sector. And I'm surprised that the three panellists have spent a long time this evening castigating the civil service. This is the same civil service that up until the late 1990s was internationally regarded as a Rolls-Royce um, administration. And from the end of the 90s onwards, I would suggest there have been a number of reforms um, which have had the result of emasculating the civil service. The first and obvious one is the arrival of SPADs wielding real power. I used to work with SPADs, oh, way back um, when I was in private office, but they never ever, until Tony Blair arrived, had the sort of power which has culminated in the Dominic Cummings era. None of your three um, participants discussed about the impact of political advisors taking short-term decisions on why that may have affected delivery. I could go on about NEDs and some of the other yes. the result. The Tom, result please, please don't go on because there are other questioners behind you in the queue. To emasculate the civil service, and it's not fair of your participants um, to blame the civil service because it's not the same civil service that we used to have. Very good. Thank you. Uh, and the third question was from John Newell. John. Hello. Um, Sima Chakrabarti earlier on in the session uh, talked of the need for specialists rather than generalists in senior civil service positions. I'm afraid I'm old enough to remember the Fulton Report in 1968 saying exactly the same. So my question is, will there be more progress in the 21st century than the 20th? Thank you. Very good. And I'm going to invite my panel to answer this. Uh, in the order, Suma, then Sophie, and then Nick. Um, so, Suma, would you like to go first? You don't have to answer all the questions, okay. whichever um, ones you choose. Well, I'll leave the first question maybe to, to others, but um, I thought, Tom, um, I thought we, I was being very clear, and as I was Nick, that we weren't blaming the civil service, actually. We see this uh, whole-of-governance problem involving ministers, political parties, and parliament as well. Um, uh, just to your direct uh, points, uh, I mean, you know, we can argue about uh, when the decline set in. Um, uh, I think on special advisors, my experience was certainly that there were some special advisors I really valued because they brought a specific set of skills that we didn't necessarily have in the civil service at the time. I'll give you uh, an example, uh, which is Jeff Mulgan. I thought Jeff was a fantastic person to come in as a social advisor because we were struggling with urban regeneration programs on, and he had thought and deeply about these issues. And he made a, a real difference to the thinking in the treasury and also in the Department of Environment, um, Transport and Regions at the time. So I think there are special advisors and special advisors, um, but I agree there are also some who are quite toxic and actually poison the relationship sometimes between civil service and ministers as well. 
But the other part, which you, you didn't mention, and I think, um, you know, it's Nick and I have reflected on this a lot, is what is a political career these days? Um, I think one of the problems in our, in our governance is that politicians these days, more and more, have a very narrow path to, um, to their roles as ministers, if you like, or as MPs. They very much grow up uh, in the, as maybe as spads and go straight into ministerial uh, jobs or become MPs and ministers. And they haven't had the experience of leading and managing large organizations, which is what they have to actually engage with when they're in government. So the, the experience uh, of these uh, of politicians is, I think, a big, big part of the problem as well. Uh, on John's point, I mean, yes, uh, Fulton was right. Uh, the problem is we haven't really implemented Fulton in full measure. Um, what I'm arguing for is not just a parity of esteem between policy people and, um, and the delivery people. That's part of it. What I'm really arguing for is I think the policy people need to be much more specialist themselves. Uh, as well. Um, so I, I said this to one permanent secretary of D DFID when he went there. Um, you can work it out who it was. Uh, but I said, it's very difficult for you to succeed in this role at, at the International Development Department, unless you can, within a few weeks, make a speech on maternal mortality without any notes. Because you're not. You're a, you're a journalist from another department who's never actually thought about development issues or experienced them. And actually, I think both the department, but also its network outside internationally, you'll be much less effective uh, unless you can gra grapple with these issues very quickly. So in certain departments, it's very difficult, I think, unless you really can grapple with the specialisms. And, you know, I, I've had this experience myself. I was not, I was not a, a criminal justice or civil justice expert when I went to the MOJ, but I was brought in really as a manager and leader to create the MOJ uh, for a specific person for a specific period. So I think I'm arguing for more specialization in the policy area as well as the delivery area. Thank you. Sophie. I'll just pick up um, from Sumer on this theme of specialization of skills, because it's, it's, it's a kind of big differentiator between the civil service and the private sector, where you've had very steady um, professionalization, specialization of skills. Um, uh, and and you still have this this you know, large large group of, of, of generalists within within the the um, within the service. There has been um, notable progress on that over the last sort of ten to fifteen years, starting initially with with what's known as the functions of so the kind of the 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 commercial, the finance, the project management specialism within um, within government. And government has developed a, a, a model, a method for professionalizing those particular functions. And I think the next step is to apply that model to, to policy and more and broader operational delivery roles. Thank you. Nick? Um, to Sam's question on you know, what uh, other examples of sort of uh, smart government reforms uh, in the past, I, I mentioned uh, Tony Blair's interest in delivery. And I think, um, uh, having Michael Barber in charge of a delivery unit that was relentlessly focused on, on, on whether there'd be delivery or not uh, uh, was um, a, 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 a good development. And I think it was a mistake of uh, the coalition government not to maintain that. Interestingly, uh, Boris Johnson has brought in Michael Barber to advise him on these now. And I think that's a really encouraging um, and, and, and a very uh, a good, good choice to, to, to involve somebody who, who 
uh, on a non-partisan basis who thought so hard about how to uh, make the system uh, uh, deliver. Uh, um, perhaps after that, um, I would point as a, as a, a good example of smart government reforms, uh, Francis Moore's reforms to um, create the government uh, digital service uh, and gov.uk, uh, which for a while put this country in the lead in terms of the delivery of uh, digital government. And there were governments all over the world um, who um, were, were, were following uh, the example. I remember um, uh, visiting um, Canberra and, and, and discovering that for myself, that you know, the thing that the, many of the political leaders there were particularly interested to talk about was how we were effectively digitalizing uh, government. Uh, and it was also a kind of proxy way of uh, seeing whether um, you, 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 you can begin to break down some of the artificial barriers uh, between departments. We fell behind a bit, uh, and uh, our commission has published uh, a very persuasive paper uh, on digital reforms, uh, which says that uh, government should be digital by report, uh, default and makes a number of other recommendations uh, uh, for reform that are really worth uh, looking at. And I should have mentioned amongst our commissioners, are, it includes um, a really impressive digital entrepreneur and, and others who do understand the digital agenda, which I think will be so important to any future government. Finally, if I could just, um, because I think it's so important to rebut it, um, uh, uh, repeat what Suma said, we were not castigating or blaming the civil service. We took great care not to do so. I think what we were talking about was systemic issues that need to be addressed and I've always been at pains to point out that I think, uh, you know, that there is a sort of political side to this as well that is a problem. That leads me to the issue of SPACs. Um, I, I am not a, a particular uh, um, fan of SPACs, but I think that they are a necessity uh, in uh, an environment where the media is now so um, a permanent and uh, all-consuming. And I think properly used, um, there is there, there is a role uh, for SPADs in relation to that. You simply can't ignore the sort of pressures which um, cabinet ministers are buffeted by in terms of relentless media uh, attention on a 24-7 basis. And I think without the uh, help of, of SPADs, I think it would be difficult uh, for them to deal with that. And I think SPADs can deal with an aspect of work that civil servants shouldn't, which is the more political, and that's a proper division of responsibility. Where I think there can be a problem is partly if there are behavioral issues that Suma uh, described that I hardly need to um, uh, underline. But I think also where too much of the department's whole business, and, and this perhaps would, 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 would accept some of the premise of what uh, Tom was saying, um, is, is um, uh, actually channeled through uh, two or three relatively young political advisors uh, in a way that um, I think is an inappropriate use of their particular uh, talents uh, and can actually, I think, um, hold things up rather than uh, uh, speed things up. One of the things that um, uh, before the commission, the, the, the Govern Up project that I started recommended uh, and which the coalition government did uh, take, uh, take up was uh, the the idea of it, what we call extended ministerial offices and and the, the idea of that was to bring in more uh, policy advisors to support uh, uh, ministers um, it, 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 who were not political advisors and I think there's sort of a, a 
distinction between the two. Actually, Tony Blair's government had rather more policy advisors uh, uh, and so on. They could be real experts in their field, um, or indeed they could be um, serving civil servants who are seconded to a minister's office. Um, but I think that the, 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 the level of support for a minister uh, probably still isn't adequate given the pressures um, which, which they face, which are really considerable in this, uh, in this day and age. And I don't think the SPADs are a, a sufficient uh, a solution to that, but I'm afraid they are, uh, if you like, a necessary evil, uh, so far as any you know, modern political government, I think, has to have uh, political advisors, but they have to have a place. Thank you. And Sumer said some are very good indeed, and he mentioned Jeff Mulgram. I'm pleased to say Jeff is now a, a professor at UCL. Um, Abby, let's go into the, to the next round, and which may be the final round. Sure. So Ewan asked, do the panelists see any organisations within government who successfully join up digital capabilities with effective management of them? And then I'm going to ask James Howarth and John Lyon to ask that question. Uh, thank you. Um, it's just a, it's just a quick question. It's building on something actually Nick said there. Um, I just wondered whether we could encourage a, a greater use of short-term secondments uh, to ensure civil servants um, increase their field knowledge um, and are exposed to a non-Whitehall way of working. We talked about non-exec directors actually sitting in the in the departments. I wonder whether it could work the other way around. Thank you. And lastly, John Lan. John, could you unmute? Got it, I hope. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Good. Hello. Um, you talked a bit about devolution, but uh, I wanted to ask a, a more about decentralization. Um, we've had examples recently of, uh, of suggestions that the treasury should be split and some of it moved, uh, moved up north. Do you think that's going to benefit your uh, plans for a smarter governments or, or hinder them. Thank you. And in the final round, uh, could we go in the order, Nick, um, and then Sophie and then Suma? Nick. Um, so uh, as to moving departments, I can kind of understand uh, why that is, uh, why um, a government should want to do that. Um, I do think that there is a, there is a massive regional imbalance within within England um, because of uh, the way the economy changed uh, in, in in the last century and the growth and dominance of London's power, both as a capital city and its financial uh, centre, uh, at the same time as uh, our northern cities were suffering the, the, the fallout of the, the nine reforms and the, the collapse of the primary industries that have used to uh, be there. And uh, that's not true uh, in other countries where, where, where there is a more even distribution of wealth and power between major cities uh, in the countries, even geographically smaller uh, 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 countries. Uh, and so I think um, the, the, the government has kind of understood uh, that one of the sort of driving uh, forces behind the, uh, the, the Brexit vote uh, and I guess uh, its own electoral successes as it began to speak to the aspirations and concerns of people uh, in uh, the north of the country about uh, the, uh, the sense that there were areas that had been left behind. Um, I'm kind of agnostic about whether, uh, you know, moving 
wholesale departments to other cities, uh, how much that that will help. Um, but I think it's uh, a kind of noble attempt in in part. You know, it's a part of the, the solution to try and and uh, and address this. And I think in the in the digital era, it's perhaps a more practical alternative than it has been uh, in the past. Um, but um, I, I, I think I think we shouldn't sort of lose sight of um, the distinction between that and actually decentralizing power. I mean, the, the shift of central, centrally operating civil servants to a different part of the country is a different thing to the devolution of power to um, to regions and 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 local authorities. I guess in relation to you know, have there been um, examples of sort of digital success uh, and management? I, um, I, I think they have. And, and, you know, there are some government agencies that work really, um, you know, efficiently now, if you um, uh, re renew your passport in, in ordinary times, I mean, it might be, a, um, you know, it might be under more pressure now, if you want to um, uh, um, uh, get your tax disc, all of these, all of these um, processes have been sort of digitalized and are, and are actually at, at very efficient. Um, I received my COVID jab uh, a, a few weeks ago, and uh, within a very short space of time, a few hours, my online medical record had been updated and the fact that I'd received the vaccination was showing on my NHS app. Uh, you know, and I think, I think perhaps we are ungenerous about some of the reforms which you know, have happened, uh, in, in fact, which have um, begun to see you know, huge improvements uh, in services. And lastly, on secondments, I strongly agree uh, with that point. And I think that if we, the the, the 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 barrier between the civil service and the outside world is a relatively impervious one. You know, obviously, you know, and, and we have a lot of concerns about um, uh, about you know uh, ensuring that there isn't sort of uh, improper uh, influence uh, and and so on. Policymaking is relatively contained, and the direction of movement uh, in terms of uh, passing through that barrier of civil servants tends to be in one direction, which is the civil servants leaving rather than people coming back from the private sector uh, and so on. And there are lots of reasons for that, um, some of which may be to do with um, re remuneration, but not, but not solely. And I think one of the ways we could um, address that and I think uh, improve um, the system of public administration is to have a greater use of secondments in both directions. Um, there is some of this happening at the moment, but I think we would like to see a lot more of it where we have uh, secondments from uh, the, the, the civil service uh, and uh, out into the commercial uh, uh, sector and vice versa. And the ministerial boards that we refer to is one way uh, that we've actually seen uh, a, a, an injection of outside expertise and talent in a way that can be very supportive both to permanent secretaries and to and, and to ministers if properly done. Um, and I think that we should look at ways of trying to, uh, trying to, uh, trying to in, in improve this flow while ensuring that we can maintain the integrity of government. Thank you. Sophie. So um, on the question of digital capability, a really good example of where this, this has happened really well in the last year is in HMRC and the way that they, they stood up the furlough scheme and the scheme supporting the self-employed in about a month. 
Um, and, and we've been looking quite closely um, and talking to HMRC around how they were able to do this. And there were two, two main things that came through. One is that the department had really invested in their digital capability up until that point. Um, in fact, one of our commissioners, commissioners is their former CTO. Um, and uh, they, they have, they had in place the, the, the type of kind of cloud-based platform that, that we were um, suggesting should be applied more broadly across government in our digital proposals. The, the second thing which enabled them to do that um, was the clarity of purpose around what they were, were trying to achieve. And the way that it was described to us is that, is that you know, everyone was clear from you know the chancellor through to the programmer that what was needed to what needed to happen was to get the money to the people that needed needed it as quickly as possible. Um, turning to uh, turning to secondment, so I'm I'm somebody who's been in and out of the civil service quite often. Um, it, it's quite unusual and it's quite hard to do. Um, uh, the systems aren't set up to do it. Um, it's particularly difficult going back in again, actually, having been out. Um, uh, so one of the things that we're, that we're looking at, as Nick suggested, is, is, is ways in which you can um, support that interchange to happen on a more routine basis. So people have that kind of broader skill set that, that we, we want to see. Um, but not just between the civil service and the private sector, but, but between the civil service, the core civil service, and other bits of the public sector, particularly local government. So it is really rare for people to move in and out of um, central government and local government. Um, and, uh, and actually, the, the, the decentralization that we're going to see um, over the next kind of decade with, with civil servants and departments moving out of Whitehall, there is a big opportunity to do a lot more of that. Simply by moving people, you're not necessarily going to capture all, all the benefits that, that, that you could achieve. Um, but but you know, you there is an opportunity to be quite creative here and think about well, how you know, what would the what would the Crick Institute for, for public uh, governance look like? You know, could you create um, kind of institu cross-institutional place-based teams where you are bringing together people from different departments plus local government focused on a specific issue in a specific place. Um, maybe that's, that's what kind of innovation um, looks like in, 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 um, in the government context. Um, and I think I've covered all the three now. You may know there's a Crick Institute in Sheffield in the Department of Politics, but it's named after Bernard Crick. <laughs> Suma, you have the last word. Thanks very much. Um, well, I completely agree with James that it would be good to have more short term, even medium term um, secondments to the field. Um, actually, within the civil service, um, in Ministry of Justice, when I was running it, we we tried to get actually more of the policy people to have a, you know, to have experience of delivery uh, out in the field uh, and then to come back with that experience. Um, it wasn't always easy uh, to uh, the incentives to do that. They wondered whether it really helped their career. Uh, and vice versa to get you know prison you know prison governors. I was uh, got one of them to come into the ministerial private office uh, for a while, and she she went on to great things. I think so. I think it's really worth um, doing. It's probably easier to do it within the public service than it is to what Sophie's done is highly unusual to go into the corporate sector and come back. Um, that's very difficult to organise these days. Except you know people because frankly, if you go, some people don't come back. Uh, Sophie's unusual in coming back. Um, it's, uh, the, the pay is a lot better. I'm also interested in sending people actually to other countries too, to get experience from other uh, systems as well and bring that in. 
on decentralization, I, I think actually um, the key issue is one of our commissioners has said recently to us all, Mark Rowley, who was, I think, the assistant commissioner in the Met before, um, quite rightly said, actually, you need to have a bit of theory as to what needs to be done nationally, what should be done locally, rather than just having a sort of you must decentralize or you must centralize at all costs. You need to have some theory before you actually uh, do this. It's the theory of subsidiarity, if you like, almost. Um, and I think a lot of these initiatives, going back to even the Thatcher days, was not based on a theory. It was based on a sort of, we must put jobs out in the region. So, you know, the old ODA, Difford's precursor, the East Kilbride office was set up in the early 80s uh, as part of just getting some jobs out of London. But what happened, of course, was it was all the back office jobs. It wasn't the sort of policy jobs at all. And it was only in the sort of mid 2000s that we actually put some policy work out into East Kilbride as well. And that policy issue is the biggest issue of actually getting people out into the field from London because of the linkage with ministers and with Parliament. Um, it makes it very difficult to persuade people to get out. But I don't think it, we should give up on that. I think um, policy is often better if people have a feel for what is actually happening on the ground. One last example to finish with, I think, you know, I really liked the total place um, uh, approach we took in, I think, 2009-10. Um, we had 13 pilot areas where we actually tried to do this outcome-based approach. We put spending allocations and program design together, um, try to improve that by actually pushing it out away from Whitehall into the field. Uh, unfortunately, it was abandoned. Um, but it's that sort of innovation, that sort of pilot piloting, I think we ought to try more of. And maybe I think the Commission can give that a push, that sort of approach. But within a theory, what needs to be done nationally, what needs to be, could be done locally. Thank you. Before I thank you properly, all of you, let me give a quick trailer for our event next week. It's on Biden's domestic policy, and it's organized jointly with UCL Center for US Politics. We have four experts on American politics, two from UCL and two from the United States. But now, uh, in thanking tonight's speakers, uh, I've praised the Commission and said I've sat on several of your evidence sessions, which have been really interesting. You've clearly got some very impressive commissioners, three of them present tonight, um, and you're doing some very interesting work. So for those in our audience who didn't know about the Commission, I encourage you to go on on their website and to look out for further evidence sessions and further reports and outputs for the, from the Commission. Good luck to you, all of you, in your really important project. And thank you very much for speaking to us tonight. Abby, drum roll, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, all of you. Good night.